Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Aegean coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. We've worked with communities within the Alzheimer um, space, so dementia Alzheimer's. Uh, and for those who don't may not know, uh, Alzheimer's is a very severe disease that is affecting one out of every five people on Earth. So one of us in this room where we're recording will actually suffer from Alzheimer's. And, you know, this is something that when we started using different types of sensory exercises, we were able to tap in to memories that were accessed through the sensory network versus through our normal memory processing. So imagine working with people who haven't remembered their name or their spouse's name in years and being able to use these techniques to help them engage with those memories, help them reignite that neural activity and help reinforce neural pathways, which is really our highways for information in the brain. Now, these pathways change and it's interesting how the brain works because you can kind of switch them up. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona, and this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Ari Peralta. He is an award-winning sensory designer and has led innovative projects that empower wellness in the space, hospitality, retail, healthcare, and automotive sectors. Ari continues to champion new ways we can use the senses to enrich experiences and promote self-awareness. In this episode, we'll discuss with Ari the link between our senses and our well-being. Can you explain how our different senses can improve our well-being? What's the link between the two? What a great question, Rose. You know, as human beings, we have these different types of receptors all across our body that translate the environment that we interact with. This is what we call the senses. And most of us know the senses uh, through the organs, through our eyes, our nose, our ears, our skin. But beyond that, the senses represent this code that is translated in the brain into meaning. And that meaning becomes information. We're trying to use that information to help people achieve behavioral change, to access inaccessible areas of the brain, but also to reduce some of the symptoms uh, that we're experiencing with mass anxiety. Can you explain a bit more about these signals, like how many signals do we receive are picked up and uh, how are they picking up to send to the brain exactly? So as I shared, as most of us know the senses through organs, uh, those of us who work under the hood, if you will, inside the brain, uh, we're looking at sensory receptors. And these sensory receptors, uh, they're light sensitive. And it's not just our eyes that perceive uh, light. Uh, every cell in our body is actually uh, can do that. Uh, but besides that, we're looking at over 11 million signals being processed every 60 seconds. And these signals include temperature. These signals include chemistry, chemical signals. Uh, that's what smell is, for example. So when we look further, deeper into what the senses are, they are these different codes and signals that our body then translates into temperature, into sound, uh, into light, uh, into chemistry, into motion, even into pain. And that's where we started really looking into 
if sensation is critical to perception, which informs attention, what happens if we can modulate sensation to expand perception, to shift perception, to elevate people's moods, to reduce pain, to increase connection? Ultimately, the senses are personal and perceptual. So they're built on through these biological components, but they're interpreted through your own psychological architecture. So how do you do to modulate this and to influence this in a good way? So the first thing is understanding what people's preferences are. And that's what I focus most of my research on. Uh, that includes understanding uh, people's arousal levels. So for example, some people are hyper-aroused or hypo-aroused, or some right in the middle. Also, back to the psychological frameworks, uh, you have sensory preferences, certain sounds and smells that you like and dislike. Now, these are kind of almost built into your subconscious once you program them in. And our goal is really first to understand what are those preferences? How does your personality drive and express those preferences? And can we use these technologies uh, to uh, deliver personalized therapies? I want to give you an example. Uh, we've worked with communities within the Alzheimer um, space, so dementia Alzheimer's. Uh, and for those who don't may not know, uh, Alzheimer's is... Uh, very severe disease that is affecting one out of every five people on earth. So one of us in this room where we're recording will actually suffer from Alzheimer's. And, you know, this is something that when we started using different types of sensory exercises, we were able to tap in to memories that were accessed through the sensory network versus through our normal memory processing. So imagine working with people who haven't remembered their name or their spouse's name in years. And being able to use these techniques to help them engage with those memories, help them reignite that neural activity, and help reinforce neural pathways, which is really our highways for information in the brain. Now, these pathways change, and it's interesting how the brain works because you can kind of switch them up. And what I've learned with the senses is that by tapping into more than one sense at a time, and doing it in what we call congruent way, in other words, in a harmonious way, we're able to awaken memory from your other senses to complete that emotion, that feeling, that thought. Do you have an, um, an example uh, on someone, like uh, how you did that, how you congruated like many senses, and what was the effect on the person? So one of my favorite patients, uh, we'll just call them patient X, Okay. Um, was someone who uh, was an avid reader and sat down with his wife every morning to read the newspaper. And they had this practice for over 50 years in the mm. UK. And around lunchtime, they would meet up again after uh, going throughout the day um, from the morning, and they would talk about what they read in the newspaper. Well, as patient X condition um, deteriorated, he was really unable to remember things from that morning. Okay. So his short-term memory uh, was suffering, again, effects of Alzheimer's, which affects people in different ways, by the way. We used a combination of music and a specific scent that he liked, which was coffee. Mm -hmm. And we played a specific song and lit up that candle every single morning that he was reading the newspaper with his wife. And we used those same tools later at lunchtime or later in the day um, and almost kind of created the same sensory settings and we started seeing memory feedback 
we started seeing memory recall from happen the again. So he remembered from what he remembered at morning. lunch what he had read in the morning. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. What's the latest uh, data or discover uh, regarding this topic about sensory? Well, you know, I think what's most important is understanding that the senses operate in unison as a system. And up to this point, uh, we've done such a great job in science and all the people that, you know, the work that I do is built on the foundation of hundreds, thousands of incredible researchers that have helped us understand each individual sense. And now our responsibility as the next generation of academics, of researchers, and, and really cultivators of these new innovations and, and, and technologies that exist within us is really bringing them together. Uh, ultimately, we are multimodal, which means we are multisensory beings mm -hmm. who interpret and experience reality across all of our senses. It's not like you can turn one sense off. And, you know, I think right now, as we are developing new technologies that allow us to capture this activity, we're now able to do something called cross-modal research. And it means that we're measuring different parts of your body, your brain, your biosignals at the same time. And this is part of the next level research that is needed to really validate a lot of what we don't know. And I think it's important to state that we barely know anything about the brain. Yes, we know so much, it seems. But as you know from my talk earlier today, I do believe that uh, we are infinite outwards as we are infinite inwards. Is there a sense that's most um, effective than the others? So all of the senses play a vital role. And if you think of pixels, almost like little quadrants, little squares yeah. of information, if you take a lot of pixels out of an image, you really can't tell what it is. Mm -hmm. So that's how the senses work. You kind of need all those components to really build uh, something that we perceive as reality. Now, uh, there is a certain type of hierarchy in terms of storage space. So we see that uh, with scent in particular, uh, it's what we have more storage space. So typically we, we look at four to five seconds of memory can be contained from an experience using scent. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a positive or yeah. negative memory. Um, uh, all the way down to vision, which is your least memory, has the least memory capacity because of how much more things you see every second. During harvest, Ari Peralta shared his knowledge and the last discoveries about neuroscience. He started his pitch with this beautiful quote from Carl Sagan. Science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. When we recognize our place in an immensity of light years and in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined is surely spiritual. Ari's talk in Kaplankaya resonated with a lot of attendees. What I loved about Ari is that he 
um, had a lecture, but he made it very personal. And I felt goosebumps all over my, my body because I saw a person who believed in what he was saying. The first video really struck me, visuals that, that everything is space and we are space. And if I compare his lecture with, with, with other lectures, it was for me very inspiring that everything is frequency. Our thoughts are, are a frequency, the sounds we hear are a frequency, and everything is interconnected. One of the speech that inspired me was the one uh, given by Ari, because it says, okay, we have awareness now, so there was first a lack of awareness. Now we have awareness, and now we need to act. So it's not enough uh, to have awareness, the next point is action. And we have to find the tools to act and implement our awareness. Do you need to be exposed to more positivity? Does it have an uh, impact on your emotions, I guess? So the senses are directly connected to emotions. So I want to run you through what we talked during my presentation from signal to wisdom on the universe, which is what I call our inner universe. So everything starts with a sensory signal of some kind. And we talked about which kinds of signals yes. those yeah. are. Well, our sensory receptors, mm -hmm. they receive that information and they send that signal as data because it's classified under a specific receptor to our brain. Our brain then interprets that data and translates that to information, to something the brain can use. And that information is done through neurochemistry. This is where neurotransmitters chemicals that we describe as oxytocin, that we name as oxytocin, serotonin, adrenaline, and many others, um, this is how memory is formed, or partially, and emotions as well. So this information, it saves what's important, and then you are able to recall that. So if I ask you right now to think of your favorite meal, it's not in front of you, but in your mind, you're putting pieces together of that information, and possibly you probably tasted or smelled it mm -hmm, from your memory before even thinking of the image. Yes. Can you transform a bad memory into a good memory? Of course. I think that's what ultimately my goal is, is really to use these tools as a new layer of medicine, what I call perception medicine. Ultimately, perception is the reality in which we exist. And perception is everything, as we say. Yeah. Well, It's obviously incorrect, oftentimes, our perception. I use these to help people shift in those moments in which they are seeing the world from one single lens and frame. And when we use things like color therapy, which is what Mike Kuhn has built um, such a great world recognition around, thanks to our founders, uh, co-founders, Valerie Corsias and Dominique Kelly, you know, after they started the Pantone consumer brand, they said, you know what, color's more than a trend. Color is energy, and color can affect people and can help them elevate their mood. Now, when I joined the company as a neuroscientist, I was really looking at how can color help? And for example, one of the ways we're using color and light therapy to help people in those difficult moments, uh, we started working with dental clinics, in particular with one of the top 100 dentists in the world uh, who's based in, in, our, in, our Lisbon, in Lisbon, where we live. And we were looking at, and we're still actually doing those trials, uh, can we reduce pain perception after procedure just with color? Mm. And the answer, the preliminary answer is yes. To what extent? That is now what we're looking into. 
And how do you reduce pain perception? So all we did was after a procedure, uh, we put the patient inside a abstract, minimalist, colored space. So there was no way to interpret what was in that room except for color. So normally when we think of color, let's say if I'm asking you about green, you're thinking of something physical, probably, right? A tree, a plant, or, or something. But when I just present green to you, there's no context there. And what happens is that the signals in your brain, right? Those, those, uh, those neural pathways, they're, they're, they're looking for answers. They're going, what's green? What do I remember that's green? Yeah. And when that happens, your brain is using the energy it uses for pain to actually figure out what is that color and what does it remind me of. Ah, interesting. Can you tell me more about my cocoon and the experience you did today? We saw like cocoons, big size, and people went inside. Can you explain us what happened? So my cocoon is a really an incredible collective um, that's been around for over 10 years. And we focus on creating sensory reset experiences. It's our way of saying sensory meditation, um, but in an elevated way. We create micro-interventions in forms of multi-sensory experiences that are anchored by color. So obviously with our strength being color, we then use uh, harmonious sounds that are corresponding to those colors. And we use positive guidance or uh, what we call uh, neuro-linguistic processing, NLP, uh, to be able to then guide the person towards that outcome that they're looking for. Uh, here at Harvest, we created three different experiences, which I'm so proud of. Uh, one is with our inflatable, uh, which is basically an igloo-shaped space. I saw Again, them. abstract. What did you think? I said they look gorgeous. Like I really wanted to go inside. Yeah. You, you take a very simple, again, non-contextual color test. Basically, you're just tapping on these colors based on your subconscious attraction to I them. I did it. Yeah, it's very simple. Which yeah. color did you get? I had a bright yellow. Bright yellow. And then you immersed in your bright yellow. Yes. So if I would have gone in that room with you, would I have appreciated that bright yellow as much as you have? Probably not. And that's where the personalization, that's where the perceptual element that I mentioned earlier plays a key role. So for example, when we did the experience and so many families and couples come to harvest, which is so lovely, and several wanted to go in together. So I was kind of mm -hmm. testing with them and I'd say, okay, the first person or one of the partners, uh, you take the test first, you can both go in and then the other one can take the test. Ah. Well, whoever took the test first, they loved the first experience. Their partner was like, no, get me out of here. So if I wake up in the morning, for example, and I want to feel great, I go on the app and um, I check my color and I put the dress that makes me feeling good I think for that's, the morning. <laughs> I think that's one way to look at it. Okay. You know, because I think color isn't just about what we wear. Color is also what we receive. It's energy. And, you know, I see color as a language. That everybody would speak with no issues of um, understanding and misunderstanding. Yes, because it's your language. That's why, I, I, first of all, I would never argue again with a woman on color, <laughs> but also with anyone else because it's their unique perspective. Do we have like a um, totem color? Like we could have like an animal? I think so, yes. I think that uh, there are colors that we gravitate more towards. And what we don't understand is why. And thanks to the data that we're gathering from across 300 data points, okay. this is helping us understand, is there a relationship with mood and color preferences? 
Is there a relationship between time of day and color preferences, weather and color preferences? Okay, and the culture might play a big role also, no? Correct. There is okay. a, a huge element with culture when it comes to the context of color. Yeah. But that said, it's still personal and perceptual. Yeah. So cultural is basically one of those layers that goes into your psychological archetype, if you will, towards color. It's just one layer. But biologically speaking, uh, we respond to colors in different ways. And that's what we're trying to understand is what are the differences between our physiological similarities in the way we interpret color and really then the interpretation that takes over, which is really more our, our, our psyche. So many people are um, suffering from uh, mental health. For you, is it because stress, anxiety, and how to help this? I think so many people are suffering from anxiety today because we're using our brains in an incorrect way. And that's why I encourage people uh, to use sensory elements to help reframe their state of mind. So, you know, what makes us, part of what makes us human is our prefrontal cortex. That's yeah. the front part of our brain. And that's where we make a lot of critical decisions. It consumes a lot of energy. And, you know, that's where we think about anxiety. It's not necessarily where we stress, but where we think about anxiety and where we actually respond to stress, which is normal. Stress is, is healthy yeah. because stress is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, increase your heart rate, make you sweat and all those things. Okay. But for a limited amount of time, mm -hmm. it was uh, it's part of our biological evolution, our design so that we could survive. That said, we can't survive in that mode all the time. And what's interesting is that when we think about stress, which is really anxiety, right? Ah, yes. Okay. When we think about stress, it's actually anxiety because we're thinking about it. We're not responding to our environment. Stress was designed for us to survive the lion chasing us. Perhaps yeah. not a lion, but for something chasing us. <laughs> for a short time. Yeah. Anxiety is us thinking about that lion chasing us. So what we need to do is really stop using so much of our prefrontal cortex on worrying and giving those frameworks to our brain, which is just basically going to repeat it. You come from the Dominican Republic, a beautiful Caribbean country, full of colors. I've been there, full of colors and smell. It's uh, like a really gorgeous um, country. Did it influence, uh, as a child, your um, attraction to senses? 100%. Ah. You know, uh, where, where in the Dominican did you go? Uh, Las Terrenas. Las Terrenas. Uh, si, Las so Terrenas. <laughs> that is my favorite part. That oh, is where really? I always go. Okay. It's it is beautiful. my haven. It is where my family goes. It is. Anyways. Oh, really? Okay. So, yes. Uh, you know, we are, we're half an island that we share with yeah, Haiti, yeah, with beautiful Haiti, yeah. beautiful people of Haiti. And the part of what I grew up with was such beautiful music, bachata. Salsa, merengue, yeah, reggaeton, yeah. everything in between. And we also share these things across the generations. So I remember growing up, you know, my grandparents dancing with the cousins, dancing with the other ones, and it, age didn't matter. Uh, also, because we love flavor, you know, it's something that we enjoy, uh, that joie de vivre, if you will. Yeah. Now, beyond that, I, I really started evolving my practice, because I, I, I wasn't a neuroscientist to start with. I, you know, this is my third career. 
And what were your two first ones? I first became an um, MBA, Master's in Business Administration with a focus in international business. And then I went to Parsons to become a sensory designer, then ultimately to Harvard to yes, become a neuroscientist. And ultimately, I had to put those three professions together to create the career I have today. And they work well together. And they work beautifully together. And, and the Dominican not only helped build my foundation for appreciation of different lenses, of different science, technology, and art, but it also sustains it today. According to Mental Health Disorder Statistic, one in four U.S. adults suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder. And Ari Peralta is passionate about finding solutions to improve this through studying senses. In Kaplankaya, he talked about an important topic for him, anxiety. Saying stress is the fear of the real lion chasing you. But anxiety is the thought of the lion chasing you when it's not really here. And the brain wants to reduce any kind of unnecessary activity it doesn't want to do. So it will take shortcuts, and sometimes, many times, it will actually trick us. So that's why we need to pay attention to what is stress versus what is anxiety. You have the power to modulate and control what you believe is anxiety because it's not physically there. Yet, it feels like it's physically there because these neurochemicals are being produced. So what do we do? So our senses really provide the information that we need for our brain to reference the past and say, okay, I'm stressed about that lion chasing me or I'm anxious about that lion chasing me. What did I do the last time that's going to help me survive this time? Now remove the lion and I want you to place mentally the challenges in your life as the lion. These challenges keep you up at night. These challenges interrupt your digestion. These challenges affect your hormones. Why? Because it's cortisol being produced. And while cortisol is amazing when we are actually in life or danger, it's not amazing when it's constant. It actually is destroying our bodies. And today, massive issues that we have, every disease that we know today here on humans has something to do with this. So this is where my interest was. What if we can understand how to use some of the sensory information in a personalized way to help you overcome those difficult moments? Ari shared during Harvest the pain he had when learning about the brain. Did the pain make his learning even more powerful? Of course. You know, challenges, things that make us uncomfortable. That's where growth is. You know, I, as I shared before, I, I've not learned anything from almost two dozen awards I've received. I've learned from the hundreds of failures I've, <laughs> I've experienced. That is where we have an opportunity. And again, our brain is predictive. So, you know, yes, it's an incredible uh, biological machine. But again, it's also all about energy conservation. So it wants to make things simple. And sometimes that simplicity can hurt us. So this is where bringing that self-awareness, 
This is where practicing what you're learning is so important. Have you heard of neuroplasticity, for example? Yes. So when we learn something new and we apply, or I'm sorry, when we learn something new, uh, these neural pathways get strengthened and almost grow like branches or roots. And when you practice them, they get reinforced. But if you don't practice what you learn, they kind of grow back. And that's why we forget some of these things and moments, because our brain can't handle all that information and keeping it. But it will handle what you put attention to. And that's why, again, this connection between sensation, perception, and attention, I believe, are going to be key towards how do we regulate mental health in the future. Do you have a special routine to keep your flexibility, mental flexibility, and agility, maybe? 100%. Um, some of the things that I recommend, my students, um, even my peers, my friends, my, my clients. Um, I started this practice about 10 years ago. Um, and go figure, after I became a neuroscientist, that's when I understood what I was actually doing to my brain. Uh, my practice consists of, I watch or read, uh, but well, no, in this case, I watch a documentary just about every evening on a random topic. Wow. Last night, the documentary I watched was on roses. Ah, Your name? Perfect. I know. And it's always about learning and connecting what you learn with what you do. You also insist on uh, micro habits. What's their virtue? So when we think of some of the existential crises that we're going through, whether it's the climate crises, whether it's the financial crises, energy crises, identity crises, you know, all these things are quite challenging and they're very large problems. In fact, they are systems of problems. When we aim to solve these systems of problems, whether it's those on a global scale or the ones we have on a personal scale, it helps when we break up different micro steps or what we call micro habits that really allow you to start making behavioral change. Ultimately, are we all aware that our planet is going through a climate crisis? Whether, we, whether some people agree with it or not, we're all aware it's happening. What are we doing towards it? It's these micro steps that are gonna make a difference, but these micro steps begin with each and every one of us. Could you give an example? Sure, so one that I use in the presentation today, and I think the audience liked that one, so I'll share it. So many people want abs. Totally aesthetic, right? They yeah. want abs. So what is the goal? For them, the goal is abs. Well, you're just not going to get it like that. You need to go to the gym, which means you need to be a person, maybe in that case, that wakes up early to go to the gym. Does it consistently. And when we see people um, through different studies, we've experienced, uh, we've observed, let's say, Okay, let's make your first micro step waking up at a certain time. Okay, what do you do after you wake up? That's fine. You can go back to sleep. The next micro oh, step, okay. let's wake up and put gym clothes on. What are you going to do after that? Oh, no, you're just going to stay home. Next micro step, wake up early, put your gym clothes on, and let's say if you drive a vehicle or, or getting some transportation, get in there. Last question, Ari. It's 
the harvest of the day, a question I'm asking to all the guests um, of this podcast, uh, Harvest Series. If something easy or simple could be done and would make the world a better place, what would it be for you? Strengthening our emotional intelligence. The reason I'm champion using the senses, the ultimate goal is to reinforce, strengthen, and elevate our emotional intelligence. Now, our emotional intelligence refers to our self-awareness of emotions, towards the empathy we feel towards ourselves and others, towards the motivation that keeps us going, even in the face of adversity, and also the social skills needed to achieving that. Ultimately, emotional intelligence is about modulating our responses. And if you think of the crises today, all of them, they're all behavioral crises. All of them. So if behavior is key, behavioral change is key to solving these problems, perhaps we need to focus less on certain technologies, on certain types of structures, and really focus more on empowering how do we regulate and overcome our emotions. The thing is, again, because we have a predictive brain and because our consciousness is so limited, compared to that capacity of that brain, we're driving, we're actually not driving our vehicle, our subconscious is. So unless we bring awareness to some of those subconscious behaviors, we're just going to be repeating those behaviors without even noticing them. So one of the great things about Harvest is that, yes, we come together to become self-aware, but now we have to move the pendulum forward towards behavioral change. And by increasing our emotional intelligence, by being more empathetic, by being less reactive, by being more compassionate, you better believe we can solve these problems together. Wow, thank you, Ari. <laughs> thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Ari Peralta's explanation about the links between our senses and well-being, and how research on our senses could help with mental health issues. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram, Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so you can also visit youtube.com slash harvest series. Until next time, 